time, reconstructing sex, and being healthy at every size. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, I'll talk anyway. You got problems, he won't solve them. But I'll talk and talk and talk until it's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Well, welcome to Ask Science Mike. This is a weekly podcast where we believe that every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, the Science Mike of the title, and uh, I am a science educator who just loves talking about the way that science can apply in our daily lives, but doing so in a way that is focused on and aware of our feelings, our emotional responses to information is something that is too often left out when we talk about the sciences. So this is a show about fact and about feelings and how the two things work together and not at odds. So I'm so happy to talk with you again this week. I want to welcome all of our new friends. It's been very exciting watching uh, so many new subscribers arrive recently. Um, And I, I imagine that's from a number of things. Some of you might be Uh, from the Mythical Beasts. You might be part of the audience and community around the work of Rhett and Link, and I'd like to welcome all of you Mythical Beasts here. Uh, Some of you may be uh, getting to know me because of my new book, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. Thank you all, by the way, for making that launch so special. That has been a good time, and by the way, the launch isn't over. I am still doing in-home virtual tour stops most nights every week. And these have been amazing. I mean, any expectation I had for how these events was going to go has been far, far too low. We get onto a a web stream for a couple of hours, and we share feelings, and we share curiosity, and we respond to each other. And I want you to know it's a really special format. Uh, It is not a webcast like Facebook or Instagram where I talk and then people respond via text only. And it's not a Zoom call where everybody is up on screen at the same time, which is confusing and overwhelming. And let's be honest, some of us just don't feel like being on camera these days. Uh, What The way this event works is some people are on camera because they choose to be. And I invite them up on screen and we talk and other people interact with text. And it just... They're, because I'm doing so many of these, they're all the perfect size. You know, some nights we have, I think one night we had uh, like 14 or 16 people. And then other nights we've had over 100. It just kind of depends on on the night. Uh, I'd love to see you at any of them. Um, now, they are named after a city because I am trying to foster local community. But anyone anywhere in the world can go to any event at a convenient date and time for them. And if you've already got your book, You don't have to buy the book ticket to participate. You are certainly welcome to. I will send you a book and a postcard if you do. Uh, But if you already have a book, if you're like most people and you got the audio book, that's fine. I'd still love to see you. That's why we have free tickets available for each and every stop. So May 19th will be Charlotte. May 21st, San Francisco. May 22nd, Denver. May 26th, Philadelphia. May 28th, Detroit. June 2nd, Boston. June 4th, Orlando. And June 5th, Raleigh. So going all over, many more stops to come in the next three weeks. It's uh, it's me and you and an awful lot of fun together. So I 
Really hope you'll join me. You can learn more by going to AskScienceMike.com slash new book and scrolling down to join the tour. It's so much fun. And on that note about things you can do, don't forget that this is a question and response podcast. There is literally no podcast without your questions. So as always, we welcome you to send in your questions by going to AskScienceMike.com. If you go down to the bottom of the page, you'll see that you can send me an email question or send me a voicemail. And of course, we feature both types of those questions on the program. So send in your questions, and I'd love to see you on tour. And without further ado, let's get it started. Hey, Mike. I'm a big fan, and I hope you're doing well. Something I've always heard people say is that they feel like time is speeding up. Whenever someone says this, everyone else seems to agree. I've also experienced this. I recall a year as a child feeling like an eternity, whereas now I feel like a blink and I'm one year older. What I'm wondering is if as you age, your perception of time changes. Is there a part of our brain that perceives time? I don't think that time is actually speeding up. So I was curious as to what you can share about the brain and its perception of time. Thanks. One of the most remarkable things about our species is, in fact, our awareness of time. We have a a remarkable capacity to both, with intention, recall events from the past and our Our brains build a story and a scene around those recollections, although the accuracy is somewhat questionable. And we have a nearly and perhaps absolutely unmatched capacity to imagine the future when compared to other life on this planet. It really is remarkable how much of a temporal focus our species has, how much awareness we have of the time part of space-time. Other species don't seem to function this way. They are much more present moment to moment. They spend less time planning and less time recollecting than our species by everything we can observe. Our brains are so wildly focused on this this thing we do where we take our learnings from the past and then we imagine how we could apply them in the future to things that aren't even happening right now. And when we look at um, your question, there's a lot of merit here. Uh, Now, of course, all questions have merit. But what I mean is what you're asking in your question is widely reported by people and has been studied. Uh, When we do um, experiments uh, involving the perception of time, uh, in 2005, for example, there was a study done uh, at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich, I suppose that would be Ludwig. <laughs> and they did a study with f- almost 500 participants, 499, who ranged in age from 14 to 94, and just asked them about the pace that they felt time moving. And here's what's interesting. For shorter durations of time, say a week or a month or even a year, the subject's perception of time did not seem to go up with age or increase with age. Uh, But when you looked at longer durations, like a decade, it really does seem that older people seem to perceive time as moving faster. And that seems to uh, really kind of hit its uh, full stride when people hit about 40, Um, which is is interesting. Um, 
Now, when we look at our brains, there's a couple of things at play behind this phenomenon. Number one is when we experience an event in the moment and when we recall it later are different framings for our mind. Uh, when When we're experiencing something, that's a prospective perspective. And when we recall something, that's a retrospective perspective. And often uh, recalling things, they can seem like they lasted longer than they did or actually can feel sure they did depending on how exciting the experience was and how familiar the experience was to us. Now, why do I mention familiarity? Well, our brains actually encode our memories differently depending on how relatively familiar or novel a given experience is. Our brains just don't do a lot of encoding when we're in a familiar environment doing a familiar thing, which makes sense. Our brains want to save energy, and there's no need to encode a lot of memories about something that we're very, very familiar with. Our memories, in fact, are being reinforced simply by doing it. And on the other hand, when we're experiencing something new, our brains really pay attention because uh, we, may, we may be more likely to be surprised. We may need to use more executive function in order to survive and thrive in an unfamiliar situation. And I think this starts to get to the difference in perception of time. When we are younger, if you think about it, more of our total experiences every day are novel as a percentage than familiar compared to when we are older. Here I am in my 40s, and many of my days are very similar, even before this pandemic that we're in. Um, My weeks have a consistent rhythm, and because of that time, does appear to slow down. But I, I have noticed that when I would go out on tour, gosh, time felt just as fast in its flow as it did when I was a child. And that's the core insight. It is not actually a function of age, but a function of the way our lives are structured that impacts our perception of the flow of time. If things seem frustratingly slow in life, the solution may in fact be as simple as adding more new, novel, and unfamiliar moments and experiences into your routine, which is also frankly good for your brain and your neuroplasticity. So your question is reminding me uh, that I can do that as well. If you'd like to hear more about this, I did link to an article in Scientific American called Why Does Time Seem to Speed Up with Age? And that will be in the show notes of episode 227 of Ask Science Mike on AskScienceMike.com. Our next question came in via email and it reads, Hey Mike, thank you so much for your work. You have helped me through many tough seasons. I've been wondering about the science behind the healthy at every size movement. I have an aversion to the idea that weight does not factor into your health, but I think this may be just ingrained from years of conditioning by the media. Of course, I support and accept anyone regardless of size and hope they accept me similarly. I would never tell someone they need to lose weight but I feel like I need to lose weight to feel healthier. The healthy at every size idea runs contrary to this, doesn't it? I guess my question boils down to, can one really be healthy at every size? Thank you again. Peace, love, and entropy. Rock more. Well, I love I love your um, signature there, Rockmore. Thank you. It looks familiar. 
<laughs> yeah. If uh, if you all don't know, I sign my messages, peace, love, entropy. Uh, so I feel very seen that in that moment. And I want to thank you for asking me about this today. Um, this is an opportunity to talk about something that is very near to my heart. And um, that is the way that we relate to bodies. And this is so personal for me, uh, as we'll explore as I respond to your question. This is, um, gosh, this is at the heart of my struggles in life. And, well, let's just start at the beginning. Healthy at every size is an acknowledgement that our current approach to health and eating in the United States is deeply flawed. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is diets simply are not effective as an intervention for health. Study after study after study has shown that diets simply are not helpful. They don't do anything other than encourage an unhealthy cycle of weight yo-yoing, where people lose and gain weight repeatedly in a cycle, ultimately, according to research, doing more harm to their bodies than if they would have simply remained a consistent size. This is a big problem, and this is amplified by the fact that fat people are deeply stigmatized in our society. Wildly, wildly stigmatized. People often look at fat people with disgust or disdain. I've experienced that myself. Walking onto airplanes, sitting in business meetings, or going to a trendy restaurant and finding that, in fact, I could not fit in the chairs available. That's happened to me, by the way, more than once. Fat people get stigmatized in our society and further stigmatized by diet and fitness culture because our American view of behavior is one of individual moral failures or successes. We view thin people as those who work hard, and we view fat people as those who are lazy. Now, I want to be clear. I don't believe those things. But I am speaking a truth that I see backed up in the media and in research. When, in fact, a full look at the evidence would tell us that struggles with obesity are a systemic issue. How do we know this? Well, number one, weight is is, uh, racialized. It is genderized. It is classized. We find that people uh, who are black and brown are more often obese. We find that people who have lower income or below the poverty line are more often obese. And then we get this nasty double stigmatization where we think that people are fat and poor because they are lazy, which is a very frustrating idea for me to accommodate and even talk about. Because, well, number one, we won't even go to the structural barriers in our economy in the United States. But we can talk about food availability and cost, 
fresher, healthier foods are more expensive and less readily available. We have things in the United States called food deserts. Areas of the country where you simply cannot go buy fresh vegetables. This is common in inner city areas. This is also becoming increasingly common in, believe it or not, rural areas where retailers like Dollar General are putting local grocers out of business and then only offering, what, processed foods. And we see that the a high rate of processed food consumption in your diet is one of the best predictors for your health or lack thereof, which may or may not correlate with obesity. And that's, well, we'll get to why that's important. So what healthy at every size does is it shifts the point of measurement away from the body in the form of what number shows up on a scale or what measurements happen when we put a measuring tape around parts of our bodies to behaviors instead. And that is good. I, I, it's such a common notion that healthy at every size in some way uh, validates or supports unhealthy habits, and it does not. Healthy at every size is trying to bypass the failures of diet culture and fitness culture that means gym memberships surge every January (laughs) and people don't actually go to the gym because they're trying to respond out of shame. The, the, The culture around dieting and fitness is a shame culture. Body size is an oversimplified metric for health. Here's why. Quote, unquote, thin people can experience health complications generally associated with fatness or obesity when they have similar activities, when they're sedentary, when they eat a lot of processed foods. So some people, because of their heredity, can have a similar lifestyle and they, they don't become obese, but they do get heart disease. They do get diabetes. They can get liver disease. You see what I mean? And at the same time, some some fat people really can have metabolic indicators of health. Especially when what? When they eat whole foods mindfully. When they exercise portion control through mindful eating. When they are active and moving their bodies. Now, I cannot pretend to be some kind of dispassionate objective observer on this topic. I have always been fat, except for two small windows in my life. When I was a teenager, puberty and adolescence sapped all the the fat from my body as as I grew taller. And then as an adult, um, I, I got up to about 300 pounds and felt such shame and disgust with myself that I, I trained for a marathon and finished a marathon. And uh, I got down to what um, fitness culture would call a healthy size. And I wrecked my body doing it. Listen to me. I wrecked my body doing that. The intense running I was doing, trying to escaped not only my weight, but my shame, ruptured most of the discs in my spine. I started getting crippling back pain. Truly, 
truly, I could not function back pain. And I went to see a neurosurgeon, and he told me that 70% of the discs in my spine had ruptured and that I shouldn't run anymore. And oh, gosh, the weight started coming back. I've always been stigmatized for my weight in meetings, at restaurants, on airplanes. Oh, gosh, I feel so much shame on an airplane when, you know, I don't fit in a seat. When I have to hold, cross my arms over my chest to make sure I don't intrude into my neighbor's space. I feel so much shame. And that stigma about my body exacerbates my mental health challenges. And guess what I do when I feel anxious? Guess what I do when I feel worried or ashamed? I compulsively eat. I cope with my feelings by eating, an ongoing struggle in my life. And my wife is fat too. Both of us have complicated relationships with our body and with food. And seeing both me and my wife yo-yo up and down in one diet program and fitness fad after another, hearing us dismiss the inherent beauty of our bodies, I believe probably played a large role in the fact that my very thin teenage daughter Madison is anorexic. And anorexia takes lives and is so often a response to a terror of the stigma associated with fatness. Anorexia is celebrated in some ways in fitness culture. The bodies that we highlight and call good often a result of routines that aren't attainable for most people. And our fashion industry has repeatedly and knowingly elevated bodies suffering from anorexia as a model for the rest of us to follow. That does harm. That does real harm to people especially women. I'd never heard of healthy at every size until we started working with a dietitian to treat my daughter's anorexia. Because we wanted her to be healthy at her size which was very thin. And this dietitian also invited me and my wife to be healthy at our sizes, which are fat. And so healthy at every size is not about ignoring the risks that come with high-risk behaviors, not at all. 
healthy at every size is not a movement that says, grab your nachos, it's okay. <laughs> I, well, maybe sometimes it is. Healthy at every size is about appreciating the beauty and the value and the worth of every single body, of every shape, every size, and every shade. Healthy at every size is about recognizing that people of all shapes and sizes can have behavioral challenges around eating and physical activity. And guess what? Healthy at every size is about admitting that there are more factors at play other than personal decisions and that social and policy interventions play a role in the way our bodies are shaped. What amazed me about healthy at every size was that I could sit down with a nutritionist and come up with an eating plan that supported my anorexic daughter's health goals and my health goals as an obese man with heart disease. And our nutritionist was clear. A scale was never going to be the measure that saved my family's health. Because when we focus on the scale, when we focus on the shape of the body, we do temporary intense interventions and then we get close to a goal and we stop or progress is too slow and we give up and we stop. And I love the healthy at every size movement because it invites me to focus not on my body, shape, size, or weight, but what I do every day, what I eat, how fast I eat, and how much I move my body. Now, to, to speak to your question about, you know, do we, can we go too far? Some doctors criticize healthy at every size as normalizing poor health. And some say that it could cause people to ignore weight gain. And guess what? I don't have an answer to that criticism. I won't pretend I have an answer to that criticism. And I think that's a discussion worth having. We don't want people to have... Uh, behaviors that lead to poor health outcomes. But we also can't pretend that we're just bodies. There's feelings in there. And the current diet and fitness culture, it ignores most of the person. It reduces them to an object that needs to be transformed somehow. And movements like Healthy at Every Size are more robust because they look at the fullness of a person and they include mental health interventions, while also being wildly more inclusive. In a healthy at every size program, I can be celebrated as I am today. Not for how I change, but for how I am today. And that freedom from shame frees me from an emotional cycle of compulsive eating as it simultaneously liberates my daughter from a painful and difficult eating disorder. Everybody is beautiful. 
everybody is worthy. And everybody deserves to be supported with good choices. And everybody deserves to have access to whole, nutritious foods that support health. I, for one, refuse to focus on people's weight and weight gain while we have food deserts and while we have structural barriers around food access involving poverty. Count me in as a supporter and an advocate of the Healthy at Every Size movement. This episode of Ask Science Mike would not be possible without the support of BetterHelp. But did you know that BetterHelp is not just a sponsor of Ask Science Mike? They are the provider that I use to get therapy myself. Every single product that you hear mentioned on this program is one that I personally use on a paid basis. That's right. I am a paying subscriber of BetterHelp. And I get so much value from it. BetterHelp is an online, affordable counseling service that you can use anytime and anywhere to talk with a licensed and professional therapist. You can do that right in the app with a video chat. You can connect through a phone call. You can do text chat back and forth. Whatever is most comfortable for you is what BetterHelp provides. It's secure and allows you to connect with over 6,000 licensed therapists, which is really amazing. Here's how the process works. If you're wanting to pursue therapy in the comfort of your own home or an environment that is uh, easier and more accessible for you than trying to get to a therapist's office, you can go to betterhelp.com slash science mike, where Ask Science Mike listeners will get 10% off their first month's service. When you get there, you'll fill out a quick questionnaire that will help BetterHelp connect you with a counselor that you love. I know people tell me all the time one of the most intimidating things about starting therapy is trying to find a therapist, and BetterHelp handles that process for you. But you say, but what if I don't like my therapist? That's no problem either. You can change your therapist at any time, no questions asked, for no additional fee. So there's really no easier way to get started in getting the professional support that can help you grow and change and heal. So why not start today? Go to betterhelp.com slash science mic for 10% off your first month's service. If it weren't for my friends at KiwiCo, this episode of Ask Science Mike would have never happened. KiwiCo is an amazing California-based company that makes... Uh, learning products, believe it or not. And I say believe it or not because I just can't believe how much fun KiwiCo products are. If you're not familiar with KiwiCo, they make things called crates, which are, you know, art and education products that you get mailed every month. Uh, and they are for children. They, you know, they have crates for uh, panda crates for children that are zero to 24 months, koala crates ages two to four. The Atlas Crate, which is around geography and culture for ages 6 to 11. The classic Kiwi Crate, ages 5 to 8 for science, art, and more. Moving up, they have the Tinker Crate, which is science and engineering focused 
for ages 9 to 16, the Doodle Crate, which is arts and crafts for ages 9 to 16. And then they have the new Eureka Crate for ages 14 to 104 for engineering and design. And the Maker Crate, ages 14 to 104, for art and design. And we get four crates every month at my house. Uh, We get a Doodle, a Tinker, a Maker, and a Eureka. And then we set them on the kitchen table, and my family all barters for who gets which um, crate that month. So... Uh, I just absolutely love it. It is a great way for people of any age to go deeper in their understanding of science, technology, engineering, art, and math. And you can get started today by going to kiwico.com slash AskScienceMike, where you can get 60% off your first month of any of all of KiwiCo's lines of crates. You're going to love them. I get so many pictures sent to me of families uh, enjoying their Kiwi crates after hearing about them on the show. And by the way, I love those pictures. Keep sending them. Uh, When you tag me on Instagram, I do see it. Uh, So once again, get started today. KiwiCo.com slash AskScienceMike. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for everything that you do. Absolutely love you and all that you do. But I need help. I need help understanding sexual ethics. I want to be a good moral person, but I am super stumped on this particular issue. It was so much simpler before my deconstruction when the lines were so clear. Having been raised in the purity culture, it was straightforward. Don't sleep with anyone you're not married to and don't sleep with anyone who isn't of the opposite gender. But now that I've broken all the rules and I don't adhere to that system anymore anyways, I feel really adrift on this particular point. Morals by definition are about upholding social constructs, right? And maybe my world is just too small, but it seems like everyone's affected by every sexual decision. It doesn't seem private. Entire communities have opinions and not just religious ones. Maybe it's just a tantalizing subject, but everyone seems impacted by sexual decisions. Families, friends, coworkers, bosses, community members, you name it. So for me, I did everything the way I was told. I didn't have sex before getting married. I married young. For 20 years, I didn't sleep with or sexually think about anyone outside my marriage. I never thought sexually about my partner either, for that matter. We had sex two to three times per week, as I was taught I needed to do for his sake. When we didn't, I felt guilty. And yet my body was never turned on by him. He learned to give me a really good orgasm, but I never once looked at his face during sex. For me, it was a duty. And that doesn't sound moral to me anymore. Also, I have a really good friend who's been married for years, and she hasn't had sex in a year and a half because her partner isn't interested. That doesn't sound moral to me either. Relationships are hard. Communication is hard. Finding language and being brave enough to speak is really hard. And maybe all of us should just get gadgets to take care of our biological needs until we mature enough to be able to do the communicating around sex better. But I'm not sure that's a better moral choice. So help? Seems like maybe celibacy is safer for everyone, but I don't really think I want to make living safe my highest priority. I just don't want to hurt anyone else, and I don't know how to navigate this minefield. So thanks for any help you can offer, and thanks so much to your team for making your podcast possible. It really is helping make people's lives better. You guys are awesome. Well, that question is hard to follow. Wow. Elucidated your thoughts so well, the question stands on its own. Um, you've obviously put so much thought into 
your life and your sexuality, and I applaud you for that. And you read, you bring up so many um, vital, vital notions. Um, and we'll talk about one of those in particular in the next question. So the 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 question I'm about to give you uh, may not feel complete, uh, but it's because we we kind of accidentally have two questions that go together this week. Uh, so I will talk about kind of what to do about lack of desire sexually in the next question, because uh, I heard that part of your question loud and clear, and we will we will break that down. Again, one question away. And then, uh, you know, yeah, sex is complicated. We think about sex so often. We're culturally obsessed with it. We have a strange relationship to it. I've noticed that um, our culture tends to keep sex very taboo and repress, which means we're fascinated with it. <laughs> we have a real, like this simultaneously really puritanical sex shaming uh, energy in our culture, and then this um, this almost like sexual binge and purge cycle as a culture, and then you're watching people doing the work to to toss all that off and all those structures of you know evangelical puritanical notions of sexuality and the patriarchy, and you watch queer folks being told that their basic sexuality is even more indecent than everybody else's and then they have to they have to work their way through tremendous difficulty and shame and um, I just think there's a better way and I start with this notion sex is good and sexuality is good these are fundamentally good wholesome parts of the human experience. There is nothing wrong with sexual attraction. There is nothing wrong with acting on sexual desires. And there is nothing wrong with not having feelings of sexual attraction. And there is nothing wrong with not having feelings of sexual desire. So how do we form a sexual ethic? I've thought about this a lot. I think the golden rule really is a good foundation to begin with. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That means the beginning of my sexual ethic is consent. In any sex act, every participant needs to offer their enthusiastic consent. That means if it's one person having sex alone, there needs to be consent, which is, I think, usually granted. But when there are two or more people involved in a sexual situation or sex act, there needs to be enthusiastic consent for all involved. Now, a common arrangement for sexuality among people is pairs. Two people of varying gender identities are involved in sexual activity. Some people have multi-partner sex, and some people have sex with multiple partners. In those situations, everyone involved still needs to offer enthusiastic consent. We cannot offer consent enthusiastically or fully unless 
we have access to education and information. Education about what? About our bodies, about sexuality, about sexual safety. Sex is an activity that carries physical and emotional risks. So we should be educated about those. People have a right, I believe, to a sexual education, to learn about their bodies, to learn about different arrangements of sexual activity and sex acts, and to learn about different orientations and identities so they can begin to explore their own sexuality more fully so they can know what they do and do not consent to, what they do and do not want. Now, what about information? If we go with a pure consent model instead of enthusiastic informed consent, then you could say that two people could be in a relationship and have consensual sex and then go have sex with someone else and have consent both ways. I don't think that fulfills consent. I'm a married man. My wife and I have agreed for our own reasons to an exclusive sexual arrangement. And if I or her go have sex with someone else without seeking consent or information, we have just violated consent because, again, what? Sex does carry risks. It is possible to get sexually transmitted infections, even with safer sex practices, for example. Or I may just want to be a, not have the complexity of multiple romantic or sexual partners. And so if you agree to the terms of a relationship, and I believe terms of relationships can always be renegotiated at any time, and that either partner can initiate that negotiation, um, either way, once we've kind of negotiated terms, we have to honor that in our form of consent, I believe. And also, to have consent, we need communication. We need to ask other people if they consent to what is happening. We need to communicate our needs. We need to be able to say when we feel safe or feel unsafe. And people involved with us sexually should what? They should honor our requests for safety or distance whenever we need it without question or qualification. Because built into my understanding of sexual ethics, is that every single person has body autonomy. Every person decides when and how their body can be touched. Every person. And my autonomy of my body does not extend to someone else. So if I decide what to do with my hand and there happens to be another body there, that other person's body autonomy trumps mine. This includes in relationships. I've been married almost 20 years. I do not assume consent for sex acts with my wife. She does not assume consent with me. We seek consent. We communicate our needs and our boundaries. Which brings me to another point. Power dynamics. Consent can be complicated when we introduce power dynamics into the situation. That includes social power dynamics based on race and gender and sexuality. It includes organizational power dynamics, like um, if you're someone's boss, consent can be complicated. 
It includes obviously familial power dynamics. Uh, I don't believe that a child can offer an adult consent for sexual activity. Why? Because of the incredible power dynamic. If an adult coerces a child into consent, that is not consent. Now, I know that might seem obvious, but I am stimming off people saying, but what about if you're just consent? What if children consent? Friends, that is not what I am talking about. And it's not even clever, by the way. So, in my mind, if there is enthusiastic, informed consent, there is a respecting and an honoring of body autonomy, and there is a mitigation of power dynamics, anything that happens is sexually ethical. Now, there's some caveats here. What about that information piece? If I have a sexually transmitted infection and I don't communicate to that to someone, then they cannot offer their educated and informed consent to me. Now, what about in the thing that you just raised where you felt a duty to have sex with your partner? You do not have a duty to have sex with your partner. No one does. Part of body autonomy is we understand we never have a right to another person's body. Never. We never have a right to another person's body. And there is no shame in exploring and enjoying our own bodies. I think one of the most important and productive things that any person who is interested in sexual activity can do is to learn to enjoy their own body through masturbation. I think that people feel it's too much shame about this topic, and especially because we tend to denote masturbation as kind of a shame-based activity. Um, we tend to like have, have tropes around it being a predatory activity. And that just should not be the case. Our bodies are our own. We learn to enjoy them. I suffer. Um, I'm a sexual assault survivor. So access to my body is complicated. And I've been through therapeutic practices um, to get through that. We'll talk a, bit, a little bit more about that in the next question. Um. But I just want you to know, I know it's not simple. And we should always be able to handle our own sexual needs. If we are having a sexual encounter and our partner is not interested in proceeding for literally any reason, that encounter is over. That doesn't mean people have to just like be frustrated and miserable without stigma about masturbation. And with a good connection to yourself, there should be no problem there. Now, people can communicate their needs. So if one partner is interested in sex and sex often and the other partner is averse to sex or wants sex only occasionally, that is something that you can discuss without coercion in a relationship. It may be uh, in such an arrangement that the relationship isn't fundamentally compatible and there may have to be amendments or changes or even a dissolution of that romantic relationship. And in that case, no one is wrong and no one is bad. Could sexual ethics 
is simply an extension of good relational skills. And too often, men, women, people of all gender identities are reticent to openly share their needs with their partners. We want people to guess our needs. We try to do emotional displays to manipulate people into meeting our needs, and it is simply more simple if we get in touch with ourselves and learn to openly name our needs in relationship, and our partners can then name what they can and cannot fulfill for us. So, informed, enthusiastic consent, honoring body autonomy, and acknowledging power dynamics are the three legs of my burgeoning non-religious sexual ethics. Our last question came in via email, and it reads, Hi, Science Mike. I am married and have children, but don't fall into the average sexual category. I grew up in a very conservative Baptist church and never understood the lust issue that all men, quote-unquote, deal with. I am attracted to women and love my wife, but I've never even thought of having sex with anyone else. I never struggled with porn or even masturbated. Sex is okay, but it takes me a lot of foreplay to get into it. I know you are LGBTQ affirming, but I've not heard much of anything about asexuality from you or anyone. Is there science behind asexuality? How can I know if I am asexual? Might I be asexual or am I just Baptist prodigy? Sarcasm, question mark. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for this question. It is uh, very vulnerable to talk about sexuality and sexual desire, uh, especially in a culture that tends to equate masculinity with sexual conquest. And I appreciate you for pushing back against that mold by speaking honestly about your experiences. And I just want you to know, first of all, that this is not just you, and you're not weird, and you're not strange. When I read your message, it feels like sentences, whole pieces of it could be about me and my life. And um, gosh, and I love to talk about asexuality. You know, we used to talk about asexuality all the time on Ask Science Mike because people asked me about it. Never forget that I talk about whatever you all ask me to talk about on this program uh, because it is it is your show. Um, I'm just here responding to whatever you'd like to talk about. And asexuality is absolutely real. There is science behind it. Um, and asexuality is a sexual orientation. And I'm going to uh, share from a article here uh, from um, uh, Williams College, uh, and this is from their LGBTQ Student Life Program. And why I'm going to refer to this is I would rather refer to people using the terms that they prefer in their own community. And as I do not identify as asexual, I wanted to defer to those who do as I share this. And so, by their own estimation, asexuality is defined as a lack of sexual attraction. An asexual is someone who is not sexually attracted to anyone. Now, asexual people can be romantically attracted. So you can be asexual, 
You can be a romantic, or you can be just one of those, or you can be neither of those, right? So, um, so people who are aromantic asexuals, they're not sexually or romantically attracted to anyone. That does not mean that uh, asexuality is some form of celibacy or a mental disorder. Uh, there's nothing wrong with asexual people. They enjoy relationships. They can enjoy intimacy. They can even enjoy masturbating. Uh, maybe even enjoy sexual intimacy with others without actually having attraction to anyone. Okay? So that's kind of what we're talking about when we talk about asexuality. Might you be asexual? You could be. Here's what I want you to remember. Our sexual orientation and our sexuality is not static. It is dynamic. We are people who grow and change in life. Our orientation is not fixed. And any orientation we have at a moment is only a problem if it is creating cycles of repression or oppression in our lives, right? So if being, identifying as asexual is liberating for you, if that seems to match the experience you have as a person, saying that you are not sexually attracted to anyone, then that could be a tool that's useful to you. Now, I also want to make you aware of some other notions um, that are not meant to erase asexual asexual people, but merely uh, other places for you to research and look into as you get to know and understand your own sexuality. One is responsive arousal. Men, as we age, are often prone to believing we have reduced libido. I have often thought, am I asexual? I just don't feel sexual attraction, really, ever. Um, like you, I don't, I, I very, very seldom masturbate. Uh, and when I do, it is a, a part of a, a therapeutic process, which we'll talk about in a few moments. Um, but responsive arousal simply means that it takes time to experience an arousal response. This is common as men get older. And so, um, in any given moment, I'm not thinking about sex or sexuality. And if I give my wife a hug, It's just affectionate. But if we hold an embrace for a while, and I mean several minutes, then I will start to experience feelings of arousal and then really enjoy them and really enjoy sexual intimacy as you have described in your question. I enjoy that as well. I just don't often feel a hunger or an appetite for sex or sexuality. And because of a lack of communication in our marriage, for some time, that meant my wife believed that I was not attracted to her, that the problem was with her. And now to be clear, there's actually not a problem. There's nothing wrong with me that I experience responsive arousal. It just required communication for my wife to understand that I love her and I value her and I enjoy sexual intimacy and I just need some time to warm up to it physically. Um, and so communication, understanding ourselves enough to explore our own sexuality and then be able to communicate that with our partners is very, very important. So be aware of responsive arousal. Also be aware of disembodiment and numbing and medicating mechanisms. Uh, there's a, um, everyone knows of the term sexual addiction, but there's also a mirror image of sexual addiction, that's sexual anorexia. 
And sexual anorexia is a way of us controlling our sexuality um, when we have experienced trauma or patterns of uh, codependency or when we have a lot of internalized shame. We often repress our connection to our sexuality. People do that because of conditioning and because of trauma. I both grew up evangelical, and I'm a survivor of sexual assault. And so sexual arousal is very complicated for me because I've experienced sexual arousal in the context of someone violating my consent and doing something against my will. And that means no matter how good it feels to be aroused and to engage in intimacy, it's also easy for me to experience a trauma trigger in common forms of sexual intimacy. My body responds by protecting me and pushing down my sexual feelings so that I don't get triggered. And then when you combine that with the shame I felt about sexuality because of my religious upbringing, it was just easier for me to not feel sexual or think about sex at all most of the time. When I did think about sex or sexuality, it was from a codependent place of trying to please my partner, trying to make my wife Jenny feel valued and seen by kind of forcing myself into a posture of sexual desire, which of course, exhausted me emotionally. Now, I'm not sharing all this with you uh, to overshare. These are very intimate details in my life. And I'm being so open simply so you know that there's a lot of things that can happen with our sexuality. Some people are asexual, and they're asexual their whole lives. And those people are fine. That's good for them. And I have had periods where I have felt like asexual is a label that would apply to me because what? I experienced no sexual attraction towards anyone for years of my life at a time. And in my case, my asexuality um, was dynamic. There are periods where I feel more or less asexual. Current period, uh, well, probably more. The pandemic has really put me back into that trauma state. I have to be very intentional now in order to engage in intimacy because my body, what, wants to separate me from that feeling because of trauma. But when I, when I do this disembodiment, this numbing, I lose access to a lot of feeling. So what I find is that my other emotional development work you know, allowing myself to feel sad or angry also helps me uh, get access to sexual desire and sexual arousal. And in fact, in conjunction with therapeutic support, I have uh, been encouraged to incorporate a mindful masturbation practice into my life. Now, you would say, what? Really? How strange? Not at all. The notion here is to to destigmatize physical pleasure and to take it away from being associated with sexual media and fantasy and simply allow one to get in touch with one's own body. This is something you also may want to look into if it feels right and feels good for you. The main thing I want you to understand is that no matter how you feel about arousal, 
And no matter how you feel about attraction, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not bad. You're not broken. And you're worth getting to know, including your sexuality. So I would encourage you to keep researching, to keep exploring, to keep discovering yourself, and to communicate that with your partner as your partner communicates that with you in turn. Because working through my sexual trauma and working through my patterns of codependency have led to some of the most beautiful moments of physical and emotional intimacy that I've ever had in my life. There have been some truly remarkable moments of seeing and knowing my wife sexually as a result of all this difficult work. And guess what? If I would have done that work, and I would have figured out that I just don't experience attraction, and I'm not interested in arousal, I would have communicated that to my partner without shame because it would be who I am. I encourage you. You're doing good work in trying to get to know who you are because when we name who we are and we name what our needs are, relationships can be focused on mutual respect and mutual fulfillment, and they escape the cycles of manipulation, shame, and loss of connection and communication that too often typify our romantic relationships with other people. I wish you well on your journey of discovery and of exploration. I always love this podcast, but this was an exceptional set of questions in a podcast full of exceptional questions. I love your curiosity. Thank you. Don't forget, you can be a part of this program just by sending in your question on AskScienceMike.com. And if you'd like to go just a little more deeper than that, you can join my patrons on Patreon. Just go to AskScienceMike.com and click the Join Us on Patreon button. We have a great community there. They're the ones who pick the questions that you hear every week. And so patrons this week, great, great work. I'd like to thank Caitlin Hermstad for producing Ask Science Mike, Andrew Galecki for pre-production, Greg Nordine for production and sound design and editing, Brent Cradle for management services, Victory Palmazano for production services and producing, Tanner Hearn for management uh, and operations and logistics and the whole team at Inverse. I would also like to thank uh, Jeb Botterford for writing and recording the Ask Science Mike theme song. And of course, all of you for making this show so special. Thanks for listening, and I just can't wait to talk with you again next week. 